Thank you for joining us for this lecture number 11, The Women at the Cross, Three Marys, and a Salome. My name is Dave Shanifelt, and I can't wait to dive into our next ocean of information about the women who stayed with Jesus to his end and were present to see his new beginning. Three Marys and a Salome. It sounds like a charcuterie board. In a way, it is, because you've got such an assortment of things on a board You really can't count them, and some things just blend in with other things, and you really don't care because it all tastes good. I feel like it's this way with these women because we're really not sure who is who and which is which, and they kind of blend into each other. But in the end, we really don't care because they're all so good, and we can take joy in just knowing some good general things about them and then marvel and wonder over other things that relate to them too. In lecture number 10... We covered the four gospel accounts and saw the very curious differences between them as each of the evangelists listed the names and or descriptions of the women who were with Jesus at his crucifixion, his burial, and at his tomb on Easter morning. Now let's unpack some details we know about each of these women. Unpacking is a very good word to use because we're given precious few details about these women, assuming in fact There are different women, three women, and not as some argue, four women with different descriptions. So historians come at them like detectives, clinging on to words and names given and checking them against the backdrop of other known history and putting them in the context of other facts and circumstances to give us a pretty fair description of who they were and what they were like. That's what I want to cover here, and I want to do that for three Marys other than the main Mary, the Mary most familiar to us as Mary, the mother of Jesus. We'll talk about her last in lecture number 13. But in this lecture number 11, let's talk about the other three Marys, Mary of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And we'll throw in Salami for good measure. So let's talk about Mary of Clopas. John in his gospel mentions that Mary of Clopas was at the cross. Who was this, Mary of Clopas? Was she just some guy's wife and that's it? No, actually, there's more we can surmise about her. First of all, we didn't talk about this previously, but let's talk about it now. The designation Mary of Clopas should not be regarded as some denigrating tile in which her only worth is found in her having a husband named Clopas. The designation was essential because it was the only way to distinguish her from the other two Marys at the cross. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you have Mary Magdalene. So how are you going to describe the third Mary? As Mary, the wife of that guy Clopas, whom you all know. 
And in doing so, everybody nods and says, oh yeah, that Mary. It seems likely that she was identified in relation to her husband because she and her husband were naturally associated with each other in the minds of early Christians. We see this with Priscilla, who is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. We read about Priscilla and Aquila, which is itself striking because her name comes first before her husband's, which is unusual in ancient writings. There's a really interesting passage in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 9, he's making the case on why people should support him in his ministry. It's a little embarrassing when you think about it. Paul has to beg for his supper and claim a right to it. So he says this, quote, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So don't you see, uh, folks, he's saying here that uh, we have the right to our own food and drink. He's certainly a lot more blunt than any pastor will be on Mission Appeal Sunday when the bishop's trolling for funds to keep the diocese going. You don't quite hear the bishop saying, don't you know that I have the right to be fed and clothed and housed by all of you? But he could say that if he wanted to. And he'd have every right to say that, just like St. Paul did. But did you notice what St. Paul also said in that passage? He said, quote, Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord and even Peter? Hmm. What do we make of that? Hard to say. We know Peter had a mother-in-law because Jesus healed her. So that means Peter had a wife. But tradition really doesn't say much about her. It seems like it should, if we know that Peter was martyred in Rome during the reign of Nero in 64 AD. We can't ignore that other phrase Paul uses, the brethren of the Lord. Now look, there's one road I'm just not going down, and it's the fight many of our Protestant friends like to pick up. See, see, they say, proof that Jesus had brothers, proof that Mary was not ever virgin. Nope, sorry, not going there. I don't buy it, and I'm not even going to take up that fight here. There's plenty of irrefutable evidence to the contrary. Yes, irrefutable scriptural evidence, and I'm going to let you look that up on your own. The point is this. Jesus never, ever had any blood brothers. It's theologically impossible, and it denigrates his mother. And like I said, you can read about it on your own. But I will go this far, which is as far as the church fathers go, None go farther, and those with a contrary opinion who want to go farther should probably take note of that. Yes, of course, Jesus had extended family, and this is what the all-encompassing Semitic term for brethren meant. The term did not always refer to blood brothers, although it could have, but it most definitely did not refer to Jesus' blood brothers because he never had any blood brothers. He was God, for Christ's sake. So the term, when applied to Jesus, necessarily included cousins and relations by marriage, like Uncle Clopas and Aunt Mary of Clopas, as we talked about in lecture number 10. But let's get back to the point we want to make from St. Paul's entreaty here. See, Paul was appealing for support from missionaries who were married. 
Paul took it as assumed that there were wives who accompanied their missionary husbands and who may have been, because of that accompaniment, engaged in Christian ministry too. And that in either case, those wives were entitled to food and drink and other benefits to the very same extent their husbands were. That's pretty interesting, and it's often overlooked. So let's look at that point a little closer. We can start by looking at Paul's use of the Greek in describing the role of the wife here. And we have to give a nod to a feminist theologian for pointing this out. Elizabeth Schusler, Fiorenza, a professor of divinity at Harvard Divinity School. She says that the Greek phrase, Adelpha gynica, is typically translated as, quote, a fellow Christian as a wife. But she says a more technical and accurate transla- translation is, quote, a co-worker as a wife. Now, that's an important difference. A co-worker indicates an active role in missionary activity. So Paul's appeal to the locals that they needed to support the wives of missionaries is not simply because they are a kind of tag-along who needs to be fed and housed, but that they deserve to be supported because they are sharing in the missionary work too. We'll see this more explicitly in lecture number 12 when we discuss another missionary couple, Junia and Andronicus, whom Paul mentions later on. But what's the import of Paul's appeal for support? Well, that there appears to have been, in fact, missionary couples who are fully engaged in missionary activity. Teams, as it were. And in that case, Jesus' uncle Clopas and his Aunt Mary might well have been such a team. And they may have been a team during the life of Jesus himself. Luke tells us in chapter 10 that Jesus, quote, appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to come. Everybody likes to assume that all 70 of these others were men. And it's natural to assume because we think of them as extensions of the 12 disciples, who were all men. But scholars point out that Luke's readers would not have necessarily thought that. Remember, just a few verses before in this same account of Jesus preaching in Galilee, this is where Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene, Jonna, Susanna, and many others who were providing for Jesus, quote, out of their means, were accompanying him as he, quote, went on through cities and villages preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, in that case, there's nothing to preclude us from thinking that married couples were among those who, as it says, went on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to come. In that case, there seems no reason to think that Mary and Clopas were not among those who went two by two ahead of Jesus. Now, there are reasons, however, to think that Jesus did not send out any women two by two, and that's because of the hostility they certainly would have encountered as women traveling alone and the danger to them too. One scholar, Carla Ricci, puts it nicely this way, quote, Even though Jesus was not afraid to act freely in relation to cultural conditionings, He could not have failed to take account of the hostility and even danger to which he would have exposed the women by asking them to undertake preaching missions in a socio-cultural environment in which they would have met with disdain, mistrust, and scant consideration. In other words, look, 
We know that Jesus never sought himself bound by the conventions of the day, and he saw himself fit to go outside them when he thought right. Talking alone with the woman at the well in Samaria was just one example, and there are many more. But the divine word of God and paragon of prudence would never do anything imprudent. Sending out women two by two at that time in history, in those particular circumstances, probably not a good idea. So while some scholars think it's certainly possible that Jesus sent married couples out as missionaries, women alone or in pairs, probably not. Now certainly there's nothing in scripture Jesus ever did or said that would preclude us from thinking that women should not be involved in any missionary work. And thankfully, we've got centuries of women missionaries as examples proving the contrary. But John Paul II makes clear that whatever conventions of the day Jesus respected or transgressed, he never did so because of anything inferior he saw in women. Quote, In all of Jesus' teaching, as well as in his behavior, one can find nothing which reflects the discrimination against women prevalent in his day. On the contrary, his words and work always express the respect and honor due to women. And he says, Jesus' attitude to the women whom he meets in the course of his messianic service reflects the eternal plan of God, who in creating each one of them chooses her and loves her in Christ. And don't think that this is some modernist interpretation that Jesus may have sent out married couples. Clement of Alexandria, who died around 215, interpreted this passage the same way too. In fact, he says, quote, It was through them that the Lord's teaching penetrated also the women's quarters without any scandal being aroused. Now that's a dang good point. How are men to be evangelizing women alone without the prospect of scandal occurring? Times of today or times of old? And even in our modern liberated times of so-called gender equality, we see particular efficacy in having men's groups where men speak to men and having women's groups where women speak to women. Why would we think that would be any different in Jesus' times? Indeed, the segregation between men and women that tended to exist in Jewish Palatine would have made it more likely that husband and wife missionary teams would, as Professor Bauckham says, quote, find it easier to reach both sexes with the gospel. So where does that leave us? Well, with Mary of Clopas standing at the cross, watching Jesus suffer and die, and telling his sister-in-law, Jesus' mother, Holy Mary, that she and his beloved disciple John would have a remarkably new attachment to each other for all the world to behold. And Mary of Clopas would have watched all the events unfold at Calvary, including Jesus' last cry, his death, his piercing by the lance, and the wait for Pilate to give his body to Arimathea, during which time she, along with some of the other women, went out to get spices and perfumes for his burial. And then, when they returned, saw where he was buried. Then they went home out of observance of the law. They got up early on Sunday morning to finish preparing his body. They saw two men in dazzling apparel tell them that Jesus had risen and who reminded them that that's what Jesus had already told them. Then they ran back to the eleven to tell them the good news, only to be told they were fools. And then Clopas, later that day, said, in effect, Forget this, I'm going to Emmaus, and he took off with one of his unnamed buddies. And then Jesus meets Clopas on the way, and calls him and his unnamed buddy fools instead. 
He reminds him of all the prophecies. He agrees to go in for lodging with him. They sit down at table. They break bread with him. And then he disappears before their very eyes, just as they recognized who he was. And then Clopas and his buddies sprint the two-hour walk back to Jerusalem, where they tell the Eleven, and no doubt Clopas's wife Mary, what had happened. Don't you think it'd be a tad hard for Mary Clopas to bite her tongue at that point when he came back to tell her all of this? And don't you think it might be a bit hard for him to say no when several years later she tells him, Clopas, go pack your bag and get your sandals on. We've got some mission work to do. Uncle Clopas had a lot of making up to do. But in fairness, to his everlasting credit, and to our edification in the face of all the many evangelical efforts we've avoided, it sure sounds like he did make it all up and more. Let's now talk about the one woman all four Gospels mention by name. A woman who was, by all four Gospel accounts, at the crucifixion scene, Mary Magdalene. A great deal has been written about her from the beginning of Christendom on, and she's venerated as one of the greatest saints in the church, as, quote, the apostle of the apostles. She was, after all, the very first person whom Jesus appeared after he rose from the dead. Her name is mentioned more times in the four Gospels, 12 times altogether, which is more times than any of the 12 apostles except Peter. There's been debate since the early days of the church about whether she is one and the same person mentioned in other passages of Scripture, and it's a debate that's carried on to this present day with proponents for and against her is having been a sinner and a prostitute, or and whether instead she was an always holy woman. The debate is surely interesting and worth unpacking, although I have to say I, I don't understand why it should be divisive except there are some people who are quite passionate about defending her against the charge of being a sinner and a prostitute. The charge doesn't bother me. If it's true she was a sinner and a prostitute, then that should give extraordinary hope to the most destitute of sinners throughout the ages. If she can be saved, what makes you think you can't be saved? So on the one hand, you have the Greek fathers, who stick to the literal references to her name in Scripture and refuse to go beyond them. Jesus exercised seven demons out of her. She then became a follower of Jesus from Galilee. She went up with him to Jerusalem. She stood at the foot of the cross. She watched him being buried. She came back on Easter morning. She was the first to see the risen Christ. And she proclaimed his rising to the other apostles who heard her in disbelief. Period. Now the Greeks call her the mirror bearer because she came that Easter morning to anoint Jesus' body, presumably with myrrh. St. Augustine, who, so far as I could tell, does not take a position on this issue, observes that Mary Magdalene had the most fervent love of all the women that ministered to Jesus, because John mentions her only and says nothing of the others, whom we know were there with her, because the other evangelists say so. But sometime in the 6th century, Pope St. Gregory the Great expanded on her history and linked her to two other women mentioned in Scripture. It's easy to see why he did so, even if the Greeks disagree. In, Ch in Luke chapter 7, we hear of a, quote, woman of the city who was a sinner. And Luke tells the story like this, quote, When she learned that Jesus was sitting at table in the Pharisee's house, she 
brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Well, was this Mary Magdalene? Well, in the very next chapter, chapter 8, that we keep coming back to, Luke mentions Mary Magdalene by name as among those who followed Jesus and who provided for him out of her means. It's in that passage that Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene was a follower and that she was one of the, quote, out of whom seven devils were gone forth. Now, does having seven devils in you make you a sinner? Well, some say yes, some say no, but having devils in you generally meant that you just had ailments of unknown cause. But it also might mean you did really devilish things. I don't really buy the former meaning that if you had, say, epilepsy or chronic diarrhea, that people thought you had a devil in you. But a lot of people today think that that's what was really going on with people back then. If people back then didn't understand some medical cause, they just said, oh, it's a demon. Poor ignorant people. Well, I think people buy that interpretation because they don't really believe in devils. But I do, and the church does too. And that, as we should say, is a whole other subject. So if Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene had seven devils in her, I'm going to assume he knew what he was talking about and that it really was demons and not epilepsy or chronic diarrhea and five other health maladies that he would be most likely to know about, good physician that Luke was. But the problem in Luke's passage is that he just doesn't identify Mary as the sinner who washed Jesus' feet with her tears at the Pharisee's house. Some theory theorize that he didn't want to embarrass her with these details because she was still alive. They point out that he did the same thing with his colleague, St. Matthew, when he recounted the story of Levi, the publican. The other gospel writers tell us that the publican was, in fact, Matthew. But Luke seems shy about telling us that. On the other hand, if Luke were going to spare calling Mary a sinner, he didn't spare noting that it was out of her that seven devils came Maybe he knew she didn't care. She was proud of that. On the other hand, maybe she was not very proud at having been known as a lady of the night, which is what a woman of the city who was a sinner was meant to identify. But there's another woman in Scripture who that may or may not have been Mary Magdalene too, and that's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, or Mary Bethany, as she's sometimes called. Again, the Greek fathers think this is a separate woman because she's not named Mary Magdalene, but only Mary, which was about the most popular name in Jewish Palestine. Again, in Luke chapter 10, we are told of Jesus' visit to Martha and Mary, quote, in a certain town. Now, what is this town? Well, we know this much. Jesus had been preaching in Galilee, and then he left to head towards Jerusalem. That was after he had passed through Samaria and where the sons of thunder had called down fire for the town's inhospitability. So the town was not in Galilee. And right before this visit, we hear of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which was told somewhere on the 17-mile road up from Jericho to Jerusalem, a climb of 3,500 feet, we might add. Well, this town, this, quote, certain town, was about 15 miles up this road about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And we know from the other Gospels that it was Bethany. This is where Jesus lodged during Holy Week. This is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And this was apparently where Jesus met a woman named Martha who received him into her house and where her sister Mary sat at his feet and listened to his teaching, which bothered Martha, who complained to Jesus about it and who heard him say, quote, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, this very same Mary, the one who had chosen the better portion, was also the one whom John tells us, quote, took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. And he says this was six days before Passover and after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus and Martha were there with him. Judas was there too, and of course he raised a stink about the cost of the perfume, no pun intended. So was this Mary Magdalene? It sounds a lot like Luke's description of the sinner woman who apparently had done pretty close to the same thing earlier at the Pharisee's dinner party, pouring perfume all over his head and feet and all. But still, is this Mary, the sister of Martha and the brother of Lazarus, also the one and the same Mary Magdalene? Well, one argument against is that the title Mary Magdalene meant she was Mary from the town of Magdala. Was she also from Bethany? Did she move from Bethany to Magdala or from Magdala to Bethany and become known by both titles? Well, it doesn't seem likely. Or rather, it seems like John or the other three evangelists would want us to keep from getting confused about that point and not refer to her by both titles. And where was Magdala anyhow? Well, it was up north in Galilee, in fact, on the shores of the lake there, about three miles north of Tiberias and situated on the west end of the lake. And this, of course, is where we're first introduced to Mary of Magdala because Jesus was preaching and healing up there. Did she move from Bethany to Magdala because, well, she had seven demons in her? Or did she move from Magdala to Bethany after Jesus cast them out? And if she did, why would Luke tell us that she had followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem only to decide to take up house with her long-lost sister and brother? Well, the authors of the Catholic Encyclopedia in 1917 were not deterred by these issues. I might add that just because Encyclopedia was written in 1917 is no slight to it at all. It is the most formidable compilation of all things under the sun of Christendom to this day. But the authors there can't seem to shake the implications in the Gospel of John that Mary of Bethany was Mary of Magdala. The details of the anointing, they say, are just too close. Even though Matthew and Mark say the anointing was, quote, two days before Passover, while John suggests it was six days before Passover, the authors think that only one anointing took place there because John only claims that Jesus was present there six days before Passover and he doesn't specify that the anointing took place six days before. So, they say there were two anointings, one in Galilee at the house of the Pharisee and one in Bethany two days before Passover. And it was one and the same woman who did both. And that woman, they say, has to be Mary Magdalene. Now, St. Augustine agrees that this passage represents two different anointings, one in Galilee and one in Bethany, but he doesn't say one way or the other whether this was Mary Magdalene. So it's possible to understand that just because you have two anointings, and even by the same woman, it doesn't mean that the woman was Mary Magdalene. But 
I interrupted the argument made by the authors of the encyclopedia and others that this woman was, in fact, Mary Magdalene. They point out that it was at Bethany that Jesus proclaimed, quote, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has anointed my body beforehand for bearing. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, therefore, the authors ask, and here I'm going to quote them directly, Is it credible, in view of all this, that this Mary should have no place at the foot of the cross, nor at the tomb of Christ? Yet it is Mary Magdalene who, according to all the evangelists, stood at the foot of the cross and assisted at the entombment and was the first recorded witness of the resurrection. And while St. John calls her Mary Magdalene, he calls her simply Mary in chapters 20, verses 11 and 16. So this is what they say, although we should note that their argument is in the form of a rhetorical question, not an actual argument, which means it really isn't an argument as such. What's pretty interesting, I think, though, is the resounding silence from church fathers on whether the sinner woman who anoints Jesus' feet at the house of the Pharisee is, in fact, Mary Magdalene. They have lots of things to say, lots of beautiful things to say about this episode. But none of them will identify this woman with Mary Magdalene by name. Moreover, the argument in favor of identifying this sinner woman with Mary Magdalene doesn't address the problems we've raised earlier about why Mary would be named from two different towns a long way from each other. That's a problem. Plus, there's an easy way to answer the rhetorical question they raise about whether this Mary of Bethany, who anointed Jesus for burial at the house of Martha and Lazarus, should have a place at the foot of the cross. She was, in fact, at the foot of the cross along with Mary Magdalene. Remember, both Matthew and Luke tell us that there were, quote, many women at Calvary. And while they're described as having come up with him to Jerusalem, as Mark says, or who had followed Jesus from Galilee, as Matthew and Luke say, why can't Mary Bethany be included in this group, especially if she had lived so close, just two miles outside of Jerusalem? Well, Pope Paul VI decided to weigh in on the issue in 1969. He decided that Mary Magdalene should not be identified as the sinful woman in Luke, and he separated that title from her in the general Roman calendar. Of course, there's nothing infallible about his statement, because he's not addressing something of faith and morals. He's addressing a historical detail, and he may or may not be right about that detail, just as Pope St. Gregory was in taking the opposite position. They both offer weighty opinions, but it's the evidence in which their opinions count, not the opinions themselves. Having said that, it seems like the evidence and argument favor the Greeks and Pope Paul VI. In 1988, Pope John Paul II confirmed the use of the ancient title given to Mary Magdalene as, quote, the Apostle of the Apostles. And he describes her as one of those, quote, women who prove stronger than the Apostles at the moment of the crucifixion, having remained at Jesus' side. In June 2016, Pope Francis elevated the status of her commemoration from a, a memorial to the level of a feast in the general Roman calendar. So while you'll see lots and lots of art depicting Mary Magdalene as the city harlot or as the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and poured 300 days' wages of ointment on him, most of that art comes from the 16th century forward, and that art, shall we say, is not necessarily scriptural 
or is at least subject to considerable debate and speculation. And art has a way of sticking in our imagination in a way that words do not. So, yes, there's been quite a popular belief for quite a long time among quite a lot of people, at least in the West, who think that Mary Magdalene was the city harlot. But I think it's because of the art and not because of any intense scriptural analysis. The scriptures don't tell us what happened to Mary Magdalene after she witnessed the resurrection. And so we're left with competing legends about what happened to her thereafter. Not surprisingly, the Greeks and Latins have different traditions. The Greeks say she retired to Ephesus with the Blessed Virgin Mary and died there, and that her relics were transferred to Constantinople in the year 886. From there, at least, some of her relics made it to the Simona Petra Monastery in Greece, where her left hand is alleged to be to this day. But there's a long-standing French tradition that she and Lazarus and some others went to Marseille and converted the whole of Provence. She lived in a cave on a hill near La Sainte-Bombe, where she did a life of penance for 30 years. Her relics were claimed to be in a Dominican convent at Maximin La Sainte-Bombe, and when the place was sacked during the French Revolution, they whisked away her head in a separate vessel, where it remains to this day and is the focus of many pilgrimages. Her foot bone is alleged to be in the Basilica of San Giovanni Fiorentini in Rome, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City claims to have her tooth. And I'll add this, which is pretty cool. In 2017, National Geographic took the skull that's venerated in France and created a computer model from it to give us an idea of what this person looked like. You can look it up on the internet. It's really interesting. The woman looks like a Jewish woman with a high-pointed nose, high cheekbones, and a round face. And the scientists confirmed that the skull is of a female who dates to the first century, had dark brown hair, lived to the age of 50, and was not originally from southern France. So good grief. Who knows? Where did she go? Where are her relics? Let's just put that in the class of unsolved mysteries and move on. But in the meantime, let's also never forget that she is one of the greatest saints in all of Christendom. And to this day, she remains, quote, the apostle of the apostles. Let's talk briefly about another Mary at the cross. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. We'll talk briefly about her because there's not much we know about her. Remember, Mark called her, quote, Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph. And then he alternates titles by calling her at the burial, Mary of Joseph, and then at Easter morning as Mary of James. Then there's Matthew, who omits the reference to James the Younger altogether and just calls her Mary, mother of James and Joseph. At the burial and at Easter, he just calls her the other Mary. Finally, there's Luke, and he skips her at the cross and burial, but he just calls her Mary of James on Easter morning. John, of course, makes no mention of her at all. So, who were James the Younger and Joseph, or Joseph as Matthew calls him? Well, this James is not one of the sons of Zebedee, whose nickname was the Son of Thunder, because he's mentioned less than the other James, who was a Son of Thunder. He's called James the Lesser, too. He was one of the Twelve Apostles, for sure, and if you think there are too many Marys to keep track of, you can be forgiven for thinking there are too many Jameses to keep track of, too. But scripture does help us out, sort of. 
In the list of the apostles, we are given James, son of Zebedee, and James, son of Alphaeus. So James's mom was Mary, and James's father was Zebedee, who was also known as Alphaeus. But we now have that problem we talked about before. If James's mom was Mary, which Mary was she? Was she Mary of Clopas? If so, that means Clopas also went by the name of Alphaeus. Is that right? I wish I could say the answers are clear here, but they're not. On the one hand, we have the authority of St. Jerome, who was a pretty powerful authority because he was the one who translated the Bible into the common language and lived within a couple hundred years with the events in question. Jerome says that this James the Lesser was the first bishop of Jerusalem and who was called, quote, the brother of our Lord, although Jerome's quite careful to say the term meant cousin, not brother. And he was cousin because his, Mary, because his mother was Mary of Clopas, who was the sister or sister-in-law of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, others just don't think so. One of them is theologian Father John Paul Meyer, professor at Notre Dame University and the author of the enormously erudite four-volume series called A Marginal Jew, Rethinking the Historical Jesus. Father Meyer's great service to modern scholarship has been to rescue Jesus from the so-called Jesus movement, which, if you remember anything about it, was this terribly misguided attempt by certain modern theologians to separate Jesus from his divinity and scripture from divine interpretation by basically taking bets on what each of them thought Jesus really said and what was just made up by the gospel writers. Well, Pope Benedict XVI cites Father Meyer rather approvingly in his masterful three-part series, Jesus of Nazareth. But Father Meyer is willing to take on the traditional view as espoused by St. Jerome that one of these James the Less or James the Younger, however you translate these mysterious words, as he says, tau mikrau, simply cannot be identified with James of Alphaeus. There are just too many Jameses at that time in history, he says. James is derived from Jacob, and we just don't have any firm connection linking them up as the same people. He makes some other interesting textual arguments, and I won't go into them now, And he well may be right, and he well may be wrong. All he's saying is, look, we just don't know. We're speculating. So back to Mary of Joseph. Who is Joseph? Well, there's a list of bishops that was compiled by Epiphanius at the end of the 4th century. Epiphanius was himself a bishop in Salamis, which was on the island of Cyprus. And he's considered a saint in the Eastern and Western churches. Epiphanius lists as the third bishop of Jerusalem someone named Joseph. He doesn't say, though, whether this Joseph was the same as our other Joseph, but there's a strong likelihood he was. And that's because his brother James was the first bishop of Jerusalem, and early church authorities were often relatives with each other. Yeah, early nepotism. So what? As Chicago Mayor Richard Daly used to say, If you can't hire your friends and relatives, who can you hire? Early Jewish Christians were familiar with the same concept, although we can safely say without fear of big city corruption. Now, the name Joseph, by the way, was the short Greek form for Joseph, which is why Matthew can refer to him as Joseph without raising any identity issues. But beyond this, Joseph, likely being the third bishop of Jerusalem, we really don't know much about him. So where does this leave us? With dispute over whether Mary of Clopas was one and the same as Mary of Joseph and James. 
Maybe she was. Maybe she wasn't. Or at least, shall we say, scholars through the ages until now can't agree on it. All of this means, if you're keeping tally of Marys so far, we have quite possibly five Marys to account for. Mary of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, assuming she's not Mary Magdalene, Mary of James and Joseph, assuming she's not Mary of Clopas, and, of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And if you don't like these assumptions, then you have three Marys who are identified as being present at Calvary. But there are three other women that we need to account for by name still. Salome, Susanna, and Jonna. Let's talk about Salome. Mark is the only gospel writer who mentions Salome, and he does so twice. He has her standing at Calvary watching Jesus die, and he has her at the tomb on Easter morning. Plenty of people wonder why he didn't mention her name along with Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph at the burial, but the general assumption is that he didn't need to. And for reasons entirely open to speculation are why neither Matthew nor Luke mention her name at all. Now, she is mentioned in some document that managed to pop up in 1958 known as the Secret Gospel of Mark. That is, Discover Claims was mentioned by Clement of Alexandria in a letter to a Theodoros in the late second century. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink over this document, pro and con, and I'm not going to get into that ink here because I really don't care about it. If the early church fathers thought this book should be included in the canon of scripture, then I'd be all over it. But since they didn't, I'm not going to put any stock in it. And the only reason I'm mentioning it now is that I know some of you will want to look up details about Salome, and you'll no doubt come across this spilled ink over this so-called secret gospel and wonder why I didn't talk about it. Now you know. Nor will I talk about the Proto-Evangelium of James, or the Gospel of Philip, or the Coptic History of Joseph, or the Book of the Resurrection by Bartholomew, which are authenticated to maybe 2nd and 3rd centuries and which also purport to contain relevant details about Salome. Purport is the operative word. But again, we have no reason to believe that the details they contain are true, as we do with sacred scripture. So I don't really care about them either. But I will tell you this cool fact, and this is one reason why I like to see what historians come up with. A female Israeli historian by the name of Tal Ilan made a study of all recorded names of Jewish women in Palestine from the period 330 B.C. to 200 A.D., and she found the names of women given 247 times. And of those 247 different women, she notices 68 different names. And here's the kicker. 61 of those 247 women were named, you guessed it, Salome. And what is more... 58 of those 247 women were named Mary, or Miriam, or Maria. In that case, those two names, Salome and Mary, account for 47.7% of all named women in this period of antiquity. In other words, about every second Jewish woman in Palestine at the time of Jesus was named either Salome or Mary. The theory is that these names were popular in the Hasmonean family, and so others assume they're used to. Apparently, the same holds true for male names also. And here's another helpful fact about the popularity of these names. 
While Salome was a popular name among Jewish women who lived in Palestine, it was not a popular name among Jewish women who lived outside of Palestine, in the diaspora, as it's called, in Rome and in the north, the land we know as Lebanon. So this tells us that our Salome at Calvary was very likely a native Jewish woman from Palestine and not, say, a transplant from somewhere else. Now, as you recall, we've had some difficulty in trying to identify the name of the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Because she isn't called by a specific name, some have theorized that this is who Salome is, the mother of James and John and the husband of Zebedee, or Alpheus, as he's also known. But if that's the case, then we have to wonder why Matthew just didn't use that name, especially if he were aware of Mark's list, which many scholars think he was. The better explanation seems to be that Mark expected to know that his readers would know who Salome was, where Matthew realized his readers wouldn't know who she was, so he didn't list her. A good example of this kind of thing happening is with Simon of Cyrene. Remember, he's the fellow who was forced to help carry Jesus' cross after he was coming in from the fields? Well, Mark identified him by noting that his sons were Alexander and Rufus, as if his readers would remember who Alexander and Rufus really were. But Matthew drops the reference, presumably because he knew the details wouldn't mean anything to his readers. Well, let's talk about one aspect that we do know about Salome, as well as about the other two named women, Susanna and Joanna. They were, shall we say, rich. Well, well enough anyhow that they were able to travel all around Palestine with Jesus and his disciples and to care for them out of their means for long periods of time and without having to keep any day job. There's some really interesting words that Luke uses to describe them as we passed over them above. The first word is diaconeo, which is generally translated as ministered. Luke says that Mary Magdalene, Jonna, and Susanna, quote, ministered to Jesus. In its typical meaning, diaconeo is accused, is associated with domestic hospitality which is a strange word to use for a troop on the road. These women were in much of need of uh, domestic hospitality as the others. So what activities went along with this domestic hospitality? Now, scholars say the issue isn't quite clear. It seems to primarily refer to a go-between, as in a waiter or server, and it's not clear it also necessarily includes such things as cooking or mending clothes. In fact, some say it just doesn't include those activities at all. And then there's this phrase that Luke uses that we translate as, quote, out of their means, out of their means. The words are ekton huparkanton autes. Now, huparkanta refers to that which one has and can be translated as means, possessions, or property. This is the object of that other term, Diaconeo, they ministered to him out of their property or possessions or stuff. I realize all this may sound Greek to you, but there are really significant implications attached to these words. The concept is not, it's not that these women were sitting around cooking and cleaning for Jesus and the disciples. In fact, these words don't even say they did these things at all. Perhaps they didn't. But what the terms signify 
is that they were buying and providing whatever was needed for the journey. Food, most likely, but other necessities too. In other words, first and foremost, these women were his benefactors. They were funding his ministry. And they were the go-betweens in doing so. They didn't just write a check, as it were, and say, go with God. They used their money to buy stuff for them all as they all went along. One commentator, Jacqueline Lloyd, summarizes it nicely this way. Quote, There was nothing traditional about the woman leaving the home, becoming disciples, and journeying with an itinerant rabbi alongside other male disciples. Like their male counterparts, these women had downed tools and left behind their former work. They were no longer minding children, grinding flour, or working the loom. Instead, they were ministering to Jesus in roles not exclusive to women, acting as diakonoi, or go-betweens, buying, selling, and moving goods, and perhaps also waiting or attending on those who ate. Now, she makes the additional arresting point that their beneficial activity was a mark of lavish charity that would set an example for others in the development of the early church. Charity is the hallmark of the Christian life, and what a fine way to display it in giving one's means to support another in direct missionary activity. Think of the powerful example and place of pride this must have given these women in the eyes of others down the road. Oh my, you were the ones who helped pay for Jesus' missionary travels, and you got to travel with, with, with him? Of course we would react that way. And think of this as a prime example for future fundraising that any of them or any other missionary courting a benefactor might invoke down the road. Yes, my friend, and now you can help too. Can I talk to you a second about how you can help us? Can we step out into your magnificent courtyard over there by your beautiful reflecting pool? Let's also not forget what a pretty countercultural thing it would be for Jesus to be traveling around in the company of several rich women. As Father Paul Meyer puts it, quote, having unchaperoned women sharing the preaching tours of a celibate male teacher would have presented a potentially shocking picture in first century Palestine. And one last point. Remember, these women were traveling with someone who could feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread when he wanted to. But he made them spend out of their means to support him and the others. Generosity is a virtue that needs cultivation. He saw and knows that cultivating their virtue was not based on selfish cultivation on his part, but on the good it worked in their souls and being unselfish to others. In other words, Jesus didn't call these women to follow him around so he could spend their money and Lord knows there have been plenty of other religious leaders who've done exactly that since the dawn of time. But Jesus was different. He was the real deal. He could have turned stones into bread for all of them, as even the devil knew from watching him in the desert. He called them to share in his ministry and to learn the virtue of generosity so they could see the good result from it, both in them and in others. Now, we need to take just a minute and address those doubters who doubt that women were funding Jesus' travels by arguing that women wouldn't have had money to do that back then. Okay, let's just destroy those doubts now. And let's start with a popular notion, 
and it's certainly been advanced by some feminist theologians, that Jewish women at the time of Jesus were subject to some monolithic patriarchal society in which women were treated hardly better than dogs. You need to banish that from your mind and listen to real historians and not with those who have an axe to grind in the head of every male who ever lived, wherever he will live. Professor Bauckham has detailed a veritable legal summary of the rights a Palestinian Jewish woman had during the time of Jesus and how she might come to be indeed very rich. He identifies seven possible sources of wealth that such a woman might have had. Let's go through them. First, there's inheritance by a daughter. The Torah itself in the book of Numbers explains that a daughter had a right to inherit from her father if he died without any sons alive. Now, many centuries later, the Sadducees de developed this even further to confirm the daughter's right of inheritance even if the deceased son left offspring. In other words, the daughter still got the right to inheritance even if various nephews existed. Second, property could be conveyed to a woman by deed of gift and she would have full and independent ownership of it even if she were married. While it's true that the normal flow of inheritance would go to a son, a parent could circumvent that rule by just giving property to a daughter outright. They would take, for example, the prodigal son who might otherwise waste away an inheritance on wine, women, and song. Good old dad could just give his property to daughter Sarah outright and not hold any barbecue for his wastrel son or give him a nice robe and a fat pinky ring. We don't hear any parable about the prodigal son's sister, but we certainly could have heard one. And it wouldn't have to be a daughter. Any woman could be the object of such a favor. There was simply no bar to any outright gift. There are two well-documented accounts from antiquity of at least two wealthy Jewish families where the woman owned considerable real estate acquired from fathers and mothers and husbands, and perhaps as heirs in the absence of male heirs with a prior claim, and where the women acquired, owned, and disposed of real estate quite independent of their husbands. These and other cases, as Professor Bauckham explains, quote, show ancient Jewish and other societies to have been less thoroughly patriarchal than superficially thought they might seem to be. Ways and means for women to exercise a considerable degree of independence could be found within the broader patriarchal structures, he says. Now, a third way a woman could come into wealth was through something called a ketubah under Jewish law. It's a term that referred to both a Jewish marriage contract as well as to the money a husband pledges to his wife in the event of divorce or death. It's not a dowry. That's our fourth way. This ketubah was what we would call today maybe a prenuptial agreement in which the husband says, in effect, um, look, honey, I so want this to work out that if it doesn't work out, I promise to give you the following amount of money or property or Maybe it would not be the husband, but the wife who says, Look, honey, if you ever think of chasing after that Egyptian girl again, you are going to owe me big time. Ketubah. That's what that was. And don't think that plenty of Hirams never went back to Egypt to chase old flames. They did. And when they did, wifey would get a pile of money or real estate. Maybe a huge pile. Now, this ketubah was different than a dowry. That's our fourth way a Jewish woman could come into wealth. A dowry was what the bride's father would pay to her husband. Of course, the father would pay this directly to the husband, and the husband can do with it what he wanted. But again, if he died or divorced his wife, 
all that money or property would go directly over to the wife. Now, a father, of course, might offer a man a considerable amount of money to marry his daughter. Some might even say that ugly daughters commanded higher dowries, but we don't have to necessarily think so. Remember, these were marriage contracts, and families often had strong reasons, political or financial, to make sure a marriage stayed together, or that wifey would be well cared for if Hiram got eaten by a lion or something. And this raises a fifth potential source of income, provision for a widow from her husband's estate. Now, a widow had the right to remain in her husband's house and be maintained by his estate. Or she could take her ketubah and her dowry in full and leave. So if Hiram happened to get eaten by a lion, then wifey had an option. She could stay in the house and expect to be supported by who had ever taken it over, grown sons or other relatives, typically. Or she could take that amount along with any dowry her dad had paid, and head off to that beach house on the Mediterranean coast, or to Rome, or wherever. Now, we get a glimpse of how this works in the case of Ananias and Sapphira in the Acts of the Apostles. Remember them? They were the ones who had a piece of property that they sold and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. The only problem was they kept back some of that money, and maybe they were still thinking about that beach house on the coast. Whatever it was, that holdback didn't sit well with Peter, remember. He first confronted Ananias about it, and when he did, Ananias died on the spot. And then, three hours later, Sapphira came in, and she died on the spot when confronted too. What's interesting about that story is that it says that the two of them sold a piece of property and that Sapphira consented to the withholding. This suggests that Sapphira had a claim on Ananias's estate that required him to get her consent to sell the property. A word to the wise, when you do that kind of thing to sell some property and give the proceeds to God, don't try to give yourself a commission on the sale. I kind of wonder if any of the wealthy women traveling with Jesus had just a tiny chill go up their spines when they heard this story later. On the other hand, Maybe it was any one of these women, or more of them, who used their innate business acumen to sniff out the asset holdback and then quietly bring it to Peter's attention, or maybe to Matthew's attention. He was a tax collector, after all, and understood finances and the hiding of assets as a purely professional matter. The fishermen apostles? Nah, probably not. But let's just say that any one of these wealthy women followers of Jesus could have, would not have been fooled by any financial double-dealing. Then there's the sixth source of potential income for a Jewish woman, outright inheritance as a widow. As mentioned, a woman could inherit her husband's estate if he died without children. There's a really clear example of that in the book of Judith, where it recounts from her deceased husband, having left her, quote, gold and silver, men and women slaves, livestock and fields. Now, that was perhaps the only advantage for not having kids. The widow would get the whole kit and caboodle. Finally, a Jewish woman might acquire wealth by having some high-paying work. Examples of unmarried women who worked in highly skilled jobs, including those who wove the curtains of the temple. Those were pretty huge curtains. And somebody, we should have to think, made some pretty good money after those curtains were torn in two on Good Friday. Or... 
you had women who were members of the temple staff, or they were on the temple treasury's payroll, or they baked the shoe bread and made the incense for the temple priests. Remember Lydia, the dealer in purple goods, whom St. Paul meets in the Acts of the Apostles? She was a Greek, or at least she lived in a Greek region, but you can imagine Jewish women of similar stock, shrewd, impressive businesswomen, and loaded. And Jewish women were commonly engaged as innkeepers, hairdressers, midwives, and, well, we forget these people were needed and were paid for these services too, professional mourners. Can you imagine the ads for those jobs? Salome's mourners, the best, the saddest, the loudest criers in all of Jerusalem. Don't let your loved one go unmourned. Call Salome now for all your crying needs. So there were plenty of ways for women to become independently wealthy in the time of Jesus, whether they were married or unmarried or widowed or divorced, young or old. In which case, the many women who followed Jesus and supported him out of their means could have been independently wealthy for any of these reasons and in any of these married or non-married states. Salome, Susanna, and Jana could have fit in all of these categories too. And I think we can assume they were not terribly old. They walked around all of Palestine with him, up and down hills and through many valleys. Miles and miles they walked. It reminds me of that comment Mother Angelica likes to say about St. Joseph for people who imagine him as some decrepit old man who was pressed into being the foster father of Jesus. Old men don't walk to Egypt. No kidding. And the same is true here. These women were hardy women, capable of walking 60 miles or more from Galilee to Jerusalem and up 3,500 foot elevations from Jericho, probably better and faster than most people alive today. Don't imagine any of them as old ladies from some Monty Python movie muttering and hobbling around on canes. Well, we'll draw this lecture to a close and then turn our attention in lecture 12 to two women who were not named Mary and who were with Jesus at the cross, Susanna and Jonna. I'll tell you in advance that we really don't know much about Susanna, except from what historians can divine about women in general, but we have come to know, at least with a high degree of probability, a whole lot about Jonna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. It's a shame she hasn't been more the focus of attention in history, but not now. Thanks to an amazing amount of historical sleuthing, we have a pretty vivid picture of who this extraordinary woman was, and we're going to give her our full attention. You will not want to miss it. Please join us for Lecture 12, The Women at the Cross, Susanna and Jana. Whoa!